Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, we're going to talk about a, a bunch of things and and hopefully uh, some 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 deep ideas. And we, we just read uh, Parshas Noach, and that's um, that, that's an amazing chapter in the Torah. Uh, just this concept of the of the flood and and Noah himself, because um, Noah is a very um, confusing uh, person to to a lot of people, because the Torah goes out of its way to talk about his righteousness, and we see that basically he was the only person saved in the entire world. He and and his family, but really his family just to accompany him. So. So the, the family is saved just by virtue of the greatness of Noah. And yet, somehow, Noah has this great uh, spiritual fall, seemingly, at the end. And then it seems very unclear um, in, in, in the next uh, uh, Parsha, the next uh, chapter of the Torah, we, we have the emergence of, of Abraham. You know, Abraham, our, our father, the, the really the beginning of the, the Jewish people. And, and it, it seems that it's it's, it's unclear what is the status of, of Noah vis-a-vis the status of, of Abraham. Seemingly n- not as great. And so people start to start to criticize Noah. And, 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 and the criticism seemed to revolve around something very central um, and, and, and problematic, which is, how is it that he didn't succeed in, in praying and saving the entire world? So, so these are the questions that are, are leveled against Noah. And yet, when you really get into the deeper sor- sources about who Noah was and his true greatness, you see that a lot of the criticisms are not really appropriate and, and that, they, that they come from a, a lack of understanding. Now, we're going to get into Noah more in a moment. But this talk really is, is about something else. And um, let me introduce the idea. I think by this point, if, if you've been listening to these talks or just from your own learning, you're, you've probably come across this idea already. Um, if not, we'll, we'll go into it a little bit and then God will go deeper into it, which is that Noah gets reincarnated as Moshe. And this is, this is an amazing thing, really, um, because... Moshe is the greatest soul that was ever created. And we know that, we know that um, when Mashiach comes, that Mashiach will be greater than Moshe in certain areas, but not in prophecy. Moshe remains and will remain the greatest prophet of all time ever, and that includes Mashiach. So in this respect, we can say that Moshe is in fact the greatest soul that was ever created. So when we, when we talk about Noah, we have to have a sort of a, a larger context and understand that Noah becomes Moshe. So this root soul has like tremendous primacy. And the question that we're going to ask, or this was my question, is what is the connection between Moshe, if you will, and, and by, by extension, Noah, and water. Why, 
And, and I'll go into the, the Moshe water connections in a moment. The Noah water connection is obvious because Noah has to handle this flood that wipes out the world. But Moshe also deals with water in a very, very significant way. If you remember, when Moshe is born, he's put into an ark. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> and, he, the, and, and, and he's saved from drowning in this way. Not only that, that's the beginning of his life. How about the end of his life? What happens? Moshe is told to speak to a rock. Why? To bring out water. And he ends up hitting the rock. And then that accounts, the Torah itself says, for his death. So you see, the beginning of his life is connected to the water, and the end of his life is connected to the water. But maybe... Even more striking is the fact that he's the one, obviously, as the emissary of God, who splits the Red Sea, which is, you know, arguably the greatest miracle ever. So, so you see that Moshe is deeply involved with water, but, but, but it actually goes beyond that, because the Gomorrah itself compares the Torah to water. And so, so Moshe's primary greatness is revealing the Torah, bringing the Torah down from heaven. So the Gomorrah itself is telling us that, that the, the comparison to Torah is water. So, so if you questioned up until now the relevance or the, the, the primacy of the connection between Moshe and water, the very fact that the Gomorrah itself compares Torah to water shows you that, that that really is the, the, the central theme in his life. So again, and we'll go through some, some more comparisons between Moshe and, and Noah in a moment, but the, the question is, why would the greatest soul ever created, and in some ways that ever will be created, why would the central struggle, if you will, or the central focal point be with water? That's the question. That's my question. Okay. So, so let's, um, let's talk a little bit more about Noah and, and, and Moshe in, in comparison. Um, I, I won't go into this. I've gone into this in much more detail, but I, I'm just going to reference it right now. The Gomorrah and Hulin asks a very interesting question, which is, where is Moshe mentioned in the Torah before he's actually mentioned in the Torah? <laughs> so we can spend a lot of time on just why they're asking such a question. Like, why would you, what makes them feel as though we have a need for a mention of Moshe before Moshe is actually mentioned outright? But we've, we've discussed this uh, on another occasion. So, so uh, but interestingly, do you know where they find it? they find the reference to Moshe in a discussion of Noah. So that's, 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 that's interesting. And they find it in a gematria. The, the, the Gemara doesn't do so many gematrias. They do gematrias in the, in the Gemara, but not so many. But they find the, the hint to Moshe in a gematria in a discussion of Noah. Okay, so that's, that's one thing. Maybe, maybe more compelling... And this has been the subject of whole talks, but I'm just giving it as an aside for you right now. Um, is 
is the development, or if you will, the, the spiritual evolution from, from Noah to Moshe. Meaning to say, there's a discussion which, which, which Hashem and, and Moshe have after the sin of the golden calf. And you can see it, it's, it's written, it's not a medrash, it's written right in the Chumash itself, where Hashem says to um, Moshe Rabbeinu, after the sin of the golden calf, I'm going to wipe out everyone and start over with you. Now, d- does that sound familiar? <laughs> I mean, is that not the identical conversation that Hashem has with Noah? And Noah doesn't, doesn't, doesn't protest. And we'll, we'll get into why. And that's the key insight into, into Noah in terms of understanding um, him. But um, hold off on it on one moment. Well, actually, let's say it right now, which is that I heard from Reb Shlomo in the name of the Zohar that it hadn't been revealed yet that you could pray in such a way. Meaning this is why Noah didn't, didn't, didn't try to persuade God otherwise. And if you think about it, the, the simplicity of this actually makes a lot of sense. Because if I were to ask you, what is the definition of righteousness? Or who do you imagine to be a great tzaddik, a, a, a great holy person? And I think that maybe uh, just a very kind of good starting answer to that, that's a deep question, by the way, but just as a simple answer to that, is someone who makes their will God's will. Meaning to say they want what God wants, and they're going to use all of their power, all of their energy, to try to achieve what they understand God wants in this world, right? That, that would be, I think, a good working definition of, of holiness or, or righteousness. So when Hashem says to Noah, the world has become completely corrupt and evil, we're going to start again, and I'm going to start with you. I mean, if you think about it, why not say, okay, God, what's the problem? Right? Okay, let's do it. That's what you want? Okay, let's do it. So, so the Zohar is giving us a very... Very central, very, very, very fundamental insight into the legitimate righteousness of Noah right now, and the psychology, if you will, of Noah right now, that why would Noah even imagine to go against God? Right? Now, this becomes even more understandable in a moment when you when you understand the 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 further evolution of this vis-a-vis Hashem's conversation with Moshe after the sin of the golden calf. Hashem says to Moshe, I'm going to wipe them out and I'm going to start over with you. And then the next line in the Torah is Hashem says, now stop trying to stop me. (laughs) And you don't see any record of Moshe actually trying to stop God. You don't see any record of that. And the Gomorrah itself concludes from that that Hashem was telling Moshe, you're supposed to try to stop me now. (laughs) And Moshe, in his greatness, got the message. And then Moshe says, you know what? And this is an amazing thing. If you're going to do that, God, if you're going to wipe them out, then erase me from your book. 
Now this is this is very amazing because right now if you want to step out the the evolution of of tzaddikim, if you will, or the evolution of um, one's relationship with God and what 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 one is capable of doing or not doing, let's 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 lay it out in the following way. Noah, who the Torah again goes out of its way uh, uh, to say was an ish tzaddik, was a was a, a great righteous man. Hashem tells him that he's going to wipe out the world. Moshe doesn't, uh, Noach doesn't protest because he feels as though this is God's will. And like the Zohar is saying, it wasn't revealed yet that you could even imagine such a thing to, to want to change God's will, right? Then you have Avraham Avinu, and Avraham Avinu has his whole conversation, his, his amazing, his startling negotiation with God to save Sodom and Gomorrah. And by the way, it doesn't work. <laughs> but the fact that Abraham Avinu tries is, is, is an amazing next step, right? Now, now this, something has been revealed into the world that hadn't been revealed in the world, which is that sometimes God shows us something for us to say no to it. In other words, you see, there's a conversation in the Gomorrah between one of the uh, Romans and, and uh, Rabbi Akiva. And the Roman says to Rabbi Akiva, you know, you're really going against God's will when you give charity. Now, does, that, does that sound like incredibly perverse, right? But, but this, is really, this is really what we're talking about right now. What, what, is, the, what is the Roman's um, logic? And if you think about it, it's, it makes sense. It's incorrect, but it makes sense. He says to Rabbi Akiva, since God clearly wanted that person to go hungry and to be poor, who are you to help him and uproot God's will? <laughs> right? So, so Rabbi Akiva says, no, th- no, God put him there for me to help him. And in fact, you want to hear something? The, the Gomorrah goes even further in another place. I don't think it's in that section. That says that, that, that the reward for a poor person is even greater than the reward for the person who gives the poor person charity. Because the poor person enabled the rich person to give the poor person charity. <laughs> Can you imagine such a thing? So, so from here we see that that it is a perversion of religious thought to think that that's like that because that's what God wanted. And if you're a poor, miserable guy, well, that's too bad. And I'm actually being religious by not helping you. This is like the complete opposite of Judaism. All right? But, but this, 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 this is not obvious. If you think about it, to us it's obvious. Because the other side of it sounds so strange. But remember, we discussed it. We began with the discussion of Noah's point of view that, that, that this idea hadn't been revealed yet. And actually that there is some sense to this idea that if, if God says, I'm going to wipe out everyone, and you're really righteous and you want God's will, then you go, okay, God, that's, that's the plan. We're going to do it. You want me to build the ark? And okay, these are the people that get saved? Okay, that's what it is. So it's, it, it's not, 
that other thing which sounds absolutely ridiculous isn't really ridiculous. But we know it's not the truth. But, but that hadn't quite been revealed yet. Now, now, now the next step, and by the way, I have to say an important PS. I said that Abraham Avinu's prayer wasn't answered because Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. It's not entirely true. Lot was saved. Lot was saved. And from Lot comes Moab. And from Moab comes Rus. And from Rus comes David Amelech. And from David Amelech comes Mashiach. And that's a very, very important Torah. Because, and Reb Tzadok HaKon brings this, that, that sometimes from Abraham's point of view, he may have thought that his prayer had been completely rejected because he wakes up the next morning and the Torah says that he saw smoke like a, out of a kiln coming out from these destroyed cities. You know, after he had made this amazing, like, you know, groundbreaking negotiation with God, you know, in a way that Noah never did, right? So this was like a whole new quantum level of interaction with God. And he may have thought, wow, I've been completely rejected. And yet that prayer brings Mashiach into the world because Lot is saved. And from Lot comes Mashiach, right? So we have to know that in our own lives that sometimes we'll make prayers and it looks like what we were praying for wasn't granted. And yet there are amazing Amazing outcomes from our prayers that we're not necessarily aware of. Amazing outcomes from our prayers. All of the time. And uh, because when you admit this energy of tefillah, and you know, the harder you pray, the better your prayer is. So we, we just have to know that. And, and just a nice visualization is, it's compared, the Kutzkarebi brings it down, that it's prepared to a, a bow and just like if you're going to shoot an arrow up in the sky, the further down you pull the string, the higher up the arrow goes. So in other words, the further down your prayer comes from, so to speak, the deeper your prayer, the more from your essence the prayer comes, the higher it descends. Right? So not all prayers are equal. And when you emit something which is a true prayer, you're, just to think of it in terms of energy, you're emitting real holy energy and light into the world, which has an effect necessarily, whether you see your prayer answered or not. We should all see our prayers answered for the good, you know? But, but, but one, one has to understand that they're emitting something powerful and good regardless. Okay. So, so Moshe Rabbeinu, now takes it to the next level, which is that, Hashem, if you don't answer my prayer, erase me from the book. Basically, kill me. Now that's a whole other thing, because Abraham Avinu didn't say, if you don't save Sodom and Gomorrah, then wipe me out too. He didn't say that. And, and it doesn't say that, um, like I was discussing this with someone um, over Shabbos, where did Moshe Rabbeinu then say, have the, the, the knowledge to say to, to God or the presence of mind to say to God such a thing? So he said, well, he learned it from Avraham Avinu. But, but it, doesn't, it doesn't say he learned it from Avraham Avinu. And he didn't volunteer it. And in fact, God had to tell him, pray to me that I shouldn't do it. Because that's, that's not my will right now. 
So you see, again, I'm, I'm, I'm bringing this so that we should have a further level of appreciation for Noah. Right? That it wasn't obvious to Moshe at that moment what to do. So again, to, to, to understand Noah's greatness. And again, as we said, Noah becomes reincarnated as Moshe. So it's this same root amazing soul. So again, to give us appreciation, additional appreciation for the greatness of Noah. Okay. So now, let's, let's, let's go further and re-ask the question that, that I, I, I feel right now is the, really is, is driving this talk and, and is interesting to me, which is, what then is the connection between this awesome soul, right? Noah slash Moshe, right? This awesome soul and water. Like, why water? Why would water be that thing which, and again, the Torah is compared to water, right? So, but why would that be the thing that would sort of define, like, his level of interaction with the world in, 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 a, very, in a very direct way, right? So, so, so here are a few answers, and then maybe we'll go a little deeper. So one thing is that you can't live without water, right? This is why the Torah is compared to water. You can't live without water, and you can't really live without Torah, you know? In fact, one of the things that I heard Reb Shlomo say one time, which stayed with me always, which is that, that one's attitude about Torah is that you, you have to need it to live. In other words, it's not just something, well, I do, or I'm, I'm supposed to do, or I like doing, or sometimes I like doing, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, it's, you, you, you have to need it to live. Like, that, that's one's relationship with, with Torah, that it's like, literally like oxygen. So, so that's one connection with water. Another answer would be, well, we're, you could say, if you want to get a little more scientific, we're, we're mostly made out of water. Right? So, in other words, one's relationship with water is, on some level, one's relationship with self. And so, since the Torah is coming to fix our souls, right, this is, and to fix the world, then, or to complete the world, then, then this, then, 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 then this would, the greatest soul in the world would, 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 would naturally be involved with, with that which defines oneself. Okay, that's another answer. But I want to say something else. I'd like to offer this answer. You see, on the second day of creation, the second day of creation is, is, is they, they say, like, the most mysterious day of creation. So you might say that the first day of creation is the most mysterious day of creation because it's sort of like, you know, how did God make the world? And, and, you know, that's true. But you know what? We're never going to know. There's going to be things that we'll never quite, we'll never be able to grasp. Because we're talking about something that, that existed before the world itself existed. So our minds can't get to that point. So in a way, it's, 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 it, it will be forever a mystery. But on the other hand, it's very simple. There was nothing and then God made the world. What more do you need to know? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, you know, he, he, made, he made something out of nothing. 
right? Although the deeper commentaries say that he made nothing out of something. <laughs> because before the world was created, there was the ultimate something, which is God himself. And this world is like nothing compared to God. So he didn't make something out of nothing. He made nothing out of something, <laughs> if, you, if you follow. <laughs> you don't follow. In other, words, in other words, God is the ultimate something, right? And this world compared to God is nothing. So he took his something and he made nothing. You, you follow. But if you want to get more into the, the here and now, he made something out of nothing, meaning to say there was no world here, and then out of the nothingness he created the world. That would be the more sort of like here and now kind of more, more tangible thought there. The other thought is a deeper thought. But, but for these reasons, the first day of creation actually, on some level, isn't that mysterious, right? Um, the second day of creation, however, is, is, is very mysterious because it includes this line that basically God took the upper waters and separated them from the lower waters. <laughs> and it uses the word, you know, in English we say uh, firmament. In, in Hebrew we say rakia separating the, the upper waters from the lower waters. Now, by the way, and that's like heaven and earth, okay? So, so if you didn't know it, it's, it's, it's instructive. How do we say heaven in Hebrew? Shemayim. Do you know what Shemayim means? Sham means there. Mayim, there is water. Right? That's the upper waters. Yeah. So, so now there's a little bit of a debate among the sages as to what the upper waters and the lower waters are. What are we talking about? So, so one school of thought is that the upper waters are like the, like the cosmos, right? And the bottom waters are more like the earth. But the Ramban says, no, 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 no. The upper waters are the spiritual realms. In other words, those are higher dimensions of spirituality. And the lower waters would include the top of the cosmos because that's already physicalized, right? Even if they're the most distant stars and planets, they already have a materiality to them. So they would fall in the category of the lower waters, right? So that's a much more cosmic point of view, right? That the upper waters, those are like, wow, those are the spiritual dimensions, not, not physicalized at all. But whatever it is with the higher waters and the lower waters, we don't really know what that is, you know? And um, the Ramban, who was a great Kabbalist, by the way, this is approximately the 1100s, the Ramban says that one is forbidden to discuss this topic if they know what it's... What it, he says you're forbidden to discuss it either way because either you don't know what it really means, in which case don't speculate about what you don't know, or you do know what it means, and then you're forbidden to tell anyone else. <laughs> so, so there's a very, you know, there's, you know, there, there's an interesting phrase that they say uh, among these like really higher levels of people who, who know things, uh, but, but, and which I'm not a member of that that that, that group, but they say that those who um, those who know don't say, don't speak, and those who speak don't know. <laughs> right? So, 
So it's, uh, it's interesting, you know, like when you're learning these very esoteric things, you really have to make sure who your sources are. You have to have your sources and you have to know who the people are. And, you know, these things are taught privately. They say um, in the Gomorrah, it talks about that the secrets of the Merkava, right, like the divine goings on, are really taught individually, one person to another. And it's, it's uh, you know, the, 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 this is like very high, deep stuff. Um, now there's a movement, you know, over the last generation or so, to make a lot of these ideas much more popular and accessible. And, and uh, really, since the birth of the, the Hasidic movement and the Baal Shem Tov, and there, there's, a, there's a parable that they say, I'll, I'll paraphrase it, um, which is that there was a, the, the king's son was very sick, and so many doctors came, and no one could cure the king's son. And finally, one very wise person came to the king and said that I can cure your son but the medicine that I have to make has to come from the central jewel from the king's crown, and I have to ground it into powder. And then with that as an ingredient, I can cure your son. Do you give me permission to do it? And the king says, to save my son, yes. And so he takes this central jewel from the king's crown, and he grinds it into powder, and he makes this, this medicine, and the king's son is cured. And so they say that this is basically the popularization of these very deep mystical thoughts today. That, that we, so to speak, are all in the category of the king's son, the king's child, and we are sick, and that we need the jewel from the king's crown, which is the deepest levels of Torah, in order to heal us. Right? And, that's, and, the, and that the king himself gave permission for it to be used in this way. And, you know, today... It's more important than ever for us to understand these ideas because, interestingly, secular culture is getting deeper and deeper because more and more and more is being revealed about, about just the, the mechanics of the world. And by the way, all science is doing, science is anyone who thinks that, you know, hey, oh, it's, it's a great fight, science against Torah or science against religion, you know, doesn't, under, doesn't understand anything. Because God who created the world also created science. All science is doing is explaining, is explaining how God does things. And if you perceive a contradiction in terms of what science is saying and what the Torah is saying, you either, either the science is wrong or you've misunderstood what the Torah is saying. That's all. But there, can't, there inherently can't be a contradiction because all science is doing is, is explaining what God is doing. Right? So, so there's no tension, and there's no problem. And if there are questions, yeah, you know, as they say, no one ever died from a question. You know, I mean, it's like, okay, yeah, there's a lot of things we don't know. So, you know. And, and, and those people who think they're great geniuses and say, hey, you know something? I'm not going to, to do that unless it makes sense to me, unless you can explain it to me thoroughly. Well, everyone deserves to have something make sense to them. But did you not take that antibiotic because you don't know exactly how it works on your body? <laughs> the doctor said, take this antibiotic, and you took it, and you're better, right? So all of a sudden, you weren't such a, you didn't say, no, before you prescribe that thing that's going to get rid of this infection, let me go to medical school first. <laughs> you know, oh, I'm not, uh, I'm not into witchcraft here, you know? <laughs> 
right? All of a sudden, we become geniuses when it when it when it comes to like you know shaking a lulav or an estrich, you know, <laughs> you know. So it's like just you pick it up and shake it, like your father did and your mother did and your mother's father did and your father's mother did, you know, for thousands of years. So so anyway. Um, Let's get back to this idea. If you remember, we're discussing why would the primary soul that's ever been created, Moshe, why would it be that his central struggle should be with water? And remember, the Gomorrah itself is comparing Torah to water. Right? So, so I would like to suggest that this goes back to the second day of creation. This most mysterious day of creation, which is the separation of the upper waters and the lower waters. And by the way, interestingly, interestingly, they say that Gehenim, loosely translated as hell, was created on that day, on the second day of creation. And by the way, the word tov, which means good, is it's of the seven days of creation, it's the only day of creation that the word tov is not mentioned. Right? And in fact, the next day, Tuesday, they mention it twice to make up for the fact that it wasn't mentioned the previous day. Okay? So let's just, since we mentioned this concept of Gehenim, again, loosely translated as hell, let me just give you the 30-second explanation of Gehenim, just because it's very important to understand what that is. So, so here's the, the cosmic map. We have Earth, and then above Earth we have Gehenim. You know, normally speaking, they say, like, you know, the classical thing is that it's below Earth. It's not the case. And if you want to see where it says that, it's on the last page of Gomorrah Tamid, where it says that Gehenim is above the Rakia. It's above the firmament, okay? So, so you have Earth, then above Earth is Gehenim, and then above Gehenim is Shemayim, is heaven. And all souls, when they leave this world pass through Gehenim on the way to Shammai. And the question is, it's a purification zone. And the question is, just how long does the person stay in that place? Right? Either they zip through, if they're all good, right? As they say, where there's justice below, there doesn't have to be justice above. Right? That's why it's very important to settle any business claims or um, social ills in this world, because where there's justice below, there's not justice above, right? And interestingly, I saw this from Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver, who is in the school of the Vilna Gon and was a great Kabbalist. He, he said um, that, that when one learns Torah, one gets something called Eish HaTorah, right? Like we know Eish HaTorah as a, as, a, as a institution today. But that phrase, Eish HaTorah, was around for a very long time. Eish HaTorah means the fire of Torah. And he says, Rabbi Yitzhak Isaac Haver says, that the Eish HaTorah, bless him, shields oneself against the Eish of, of Gehenna, of the fire of Gehenna. In other words, so this, 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 when you learn Torah, you make for yourself, so to speak, this spiritual shield around you, which insulates you and insulates your soul as it ascends. So that's, that's a good thing to know. Um, and then if a person, you know, needs more fixing, then they spend more time there. 
But it's not this um, eternal idea that, oh, he's condemned to hell forever, whatever it is. That's not, a, that's not the Jewish idea. Everyone passes through on the way to heaven, right? And uh, the question is just, how long do you stay there? And that's up to us and our actions. Um, and by the way, let me just throw in one more teaching, which I think everyone should be very proud of, um, because it really shows you, I think, the truth of Judaism is that we say that the righteous of all nations have a share in the world to come, right? A lot of religions are very exclusive, and they say, if you don't believe in our whoever, then you're finished. And we say, how can that be? We're all God's children, right? If you live a a life of truth and, and, and kindness, then of course you have a share in the next one. Of course you do. Right. So, um... So now, let's get back to this idea. So why is the central soul of, of creation, Moshe, why is he dealing with water? And so I'd like to say that this goes back to the second day of creation, which is the separation of the upper waters and the lower waters. Now, I didn't tell you the most striking thing yet about the upper waters and the lower waters being separated, which is that This is the day where strife itself is created. This is what we say in Hebrew, we say machlochis, argumentation, division, right? If you want to get stronger, let's even throw in the word hatred, right? This is where all, if you want to point to the, the origin of all division, it happens there. That's where it happens on the second day. And I'll tell you something very, very interesting. We have uh, an observance. We can't do it today because we don't have a a holy temple anymore. But back in the day, um, we had something called the Simcha Sveis HaShueva. And today we still have parties known by by those names on Sukkot. And, you know, people go to, we have parties in Sukkot and, and whatever it is. But in the time of the Holy Temple, we said that this was the greatest joy that, that ever happened, and that if you didn't experience it, you don't know the definition of joy. That's what the rabbi is saying. You, you actually don't know the definition of joy unless you experienced one of those events. right? So that must have been the most phenomenal thing. Now, what was the actual observance, besides all the amazing you know, celebrations that took place? What was the actual observance that made it well, in other words, what was Simchas Beis Hashueva, that those words, what was that? They would draw water, and they would take the water to the altar of the Holy Temple, and they would pour the water onto the altar. Okay? So, and, and this was the central uh, ritual, if you will. Now, what was so great about that? Because the Medrash said the following. The, the bottom waters... We said that the upper waters and the lower waters were separated. The bottom waters were mad. And, and, and the bo- you know why? Because they say, why do we have to be down here? We want to be up there. <laughs> right? We want to be rocking with the angels. And they're like, you know, and like this whole sort of like higher realms. What do we have to be down here for? And they say that the lower waters, when water was taken and it was put on the, the Mizbeach, the altar, in this holy context that the lower waters were appeased. And they felt like, wow, they have this 
amazing role in like the divine mission. So it was a healing of this argumentation because the lower waters felt good, okay? Now I'm going to tell you an aside, something that came to me, which is that, remember, we said, we said that Noah has a fall, right? And here, here was Noah's fall. After he gets out of the ark, he's in the ark for about a year, um, he brings a korban, he brings an offering to Hashem which is great, and Hashem praises it exceedingly. Like, that's fantastic, right? Because you could have gotten out of that ark, and you could have been so angry at God, right? You're looking at the world, it's been destroyed, you could have been so angry. The very fact that his first instinct was to bring an offering was, like, awesome. Like, God loved that. Then the second thing he did was he planted a vineyard and he got drunk. (laughs) And then it says that his sons... Or his son either castrated him or sodomized him. Right? Those are two midrashim. And I heard Rabbi Weiss explain it in a very interesting way, which is, what is your reaction to total destruction? One is either, um, you know, let's... Yeah, or, or talking, trying to explain the sons. Trying to explain the sons. One is castration, meaning to say, why would we ever want to further inhabit a world like this? Why would we want to bring children into a world of total destruction? Why would we even want to? That's one reaction to total destruction. The other one was, you know, the other act that he purportedly may have done, which is just sort of like, you know what? Everything's for nothing anyway, so let's just party. Right? So that's the, that's, the, that's the other reaction. So one is sort of like nihilistic, the other is hedonistic. And these are two reactions to a sense that there is no meaning. We're very, very interesting what the Medrash is bringing down, right? In a sort of a shocking way. But really, philosophically, it's, it, it really works you know, in, a, in a very insightful way. So Noah plants a vineyard and he gets drunk. And I heard a, a Talmud Chacham, like a really a, a thoroughly knowledgeable rabbi. And he said, I'm only say, he says, I'm saying this half joking, but half seriously also. He said, after that, Noah needed a drink. And, you know, you can hear that. You can hear that. After that experience, it's sort of like, you know what, I... <laughs> I need a drink, God, you know? But that drink led to a real fall. Now, I heard Reb Shlomo say something in the name of the Zohar, which I was fascinated by. You know, Kabbalistically speaking, we say that the fruit from the tree of knowledge was a grape. And that what Noah was trying to do was to correct the sin of Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve. In other words, now that he was in a brand new world, he wanted to plant a vineyard and correct with the grape what Adam and Chava had, 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 had done a mistake on. Do you hear? So, so, so again, it's like a, 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 amazing to, to get an insight into the greatness of Noah, right? That he was thinking about further fixing the world. But, but we see it throughout in Torah that when a lot of times when people try to take on the ultimate spiritual challenge, 
that a lot of time it's 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 it it can have a devastating effect. Like they don't always succeed. In fact, they usually don't. But you know, the the the, the effort is is meaningful. Okay. So, and I want to mention one more thing I didn't mention earlier, which is that I, I actually we didn't go into this at all yet. But let's go into it now. This idea that um, remember Moshe's greatness. Is, is bringing the Torah down from heaven, right? In, in addition to taking the Jews out of Egypt and, and, and everything else. But um, it says, and I, I learned it from Rabbi Wolfson, who brings it, um, that the Torah was supposed to be given to the generation of Noah, right? That Noah was going to be like Moshe. And here you see another phenomenal comparison between Noah and Moshe, because how long was Moshe on Mount Sinai for when he got the Torah? For 40 days. And how long does it rain for initially? 40 days and 40 nights, right? An amazing parallel there. And again, what is the Torah compared to? Water. And what comes down? Water. Right? But it comes down because the generation was not worthy it doesn't come down in its spiritual form. It comes down in this more physicalized form, which then wipes everything out because the nation itself wasn't worthy. And then here you have a, a further connection that I'd like to say, which is that you see a further hint to the fact that Noah was going to bring down the Torah in the fact that his, his name starts with the letter Nun. Nun, you know, is the number 50. And it says that after we left Egypt, it says... 50 days later, we receive the Torah at Mount Sinai. Right? So there you have like the Nun, the 50, hinting at, hinting at the giving of the Torah. Now, I had a question, and let me answer it before we go back to the formal question. My question was like this. How could it be, okay, I understand the generation wasn't worthy at Noah's time, and that Torah is compared to water, and that it came down in its physicalized form, but can something that's Torah really, can we say that the Torah came down and destroyed the world? Can that, like, do we go that far? And, and, and to give an answer to that, because they are saying, but to give an answer to that or an explanation to that, I was thinking about it. It says in the Talmud the following, that the Torah can either be an elixir of life or an elixir of death. That's what it says in the, in the Talmud. So we understand what it means, an elixir of life, but how could the Torah be an elixir of death? Right, a, a, portion, a, a potion, if you will, of death. And what it says is, is that if a person uses the Torah, and they, give a, they put it in very simple terms, but we'll, let's try to understand what they're saying, that if a person uses the Torah so that other people should call them rabbi, so what does that mean? What does that mean? That means they, they say not learning Torah for the sake of heaven, not being L'shem Shemayim. In other words, if I am using the Torah in order to extract honor from you, right? Or let's develop it further. If I'm using or if people are using the Torah in order to oppress you, right? Or if people are using the Torah to misrepresent God, or to bring confusion when it's supposed to bring clarity. 
then in fact it becomes an elixir of death. It does. So really the question is not a question. Could it be that it came down in this form that was destructive? Well, the people at that time were using, were, were, were doing the ultimate, the ultimate undermining of justice in their time. They say that, what was the straw? And they, they talk about all sorts of like crazy stuff that was going on in the time of the flood. And by the way, this is just a very practical lesson for you and me. Both, they say that at the time of the flood, when you, when you planted one crop, you had food for 40 years for that one crop. So, in other words, you know what people had a lot of? Time on their hands. <laughs> so, stay busy. <laughs> I'm being quite serious. Stay busy. Because, you know, if you've got a lot of time on your hands, nothing good comes from that. Just simple as it is. You know? So, so, so the idea is that the, 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 the straw that broke the camel's back, though, they say was that, like, there's something called a, 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 a pruta. That was like a penny. That was like the coinage back then. They said that if someone, that, that the criminal justice system at that point was, um, was only actionable for something that was theft more than a pruta. So what it says is that people vary with great intention, very consciously, would steal from each other less than a pruta. <laughs> now, so you say God destroyed the entire world because people were doing like incredibly petty theft against each other? Well, they say, well, no, no, no. That's the straw that broke the camel's back. In other words, people found a way to live where they thought they were able to completely you know, completely make the law not applicable to the world. And so when the entire institution of justice became uprooted through their actions, then society itself was no longer worth preserving. Okay, so now let's, let's get back. I told you that the upper waters and the lower waters were separated and that, 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 this, was the, that this was the origin of duality in the world. <coughs> duality, meaning to say confusion in the world, where you can now begin to think that something isn't what it is. Right? What is it? Now the lower waters get appeased by water going on the altar. So the lower waters say, oh, you know something? We're being used for something good also. Now we're cool. And that's joy. And by the way, joy, you see this connection between joy and unity. Right? And Reb Shlomo says, you know, that at a wedding, people aren't happy because there's a marriage. The happiness allows the unity between chassan and kala, between bride and groom, to take place. That in other words, in order to forge that final unity, the presence of joy is there in order to facilitate the unification that's going on. So interestingly, here at the Simchas Beis where the lower waters 
are finally getting to a place where they're like no longer angry at the higher waters, right? Where there's a unity that's taking place. That's happening amidst joy. Meaning to say that perhaps it's not like, okay, there's unity, now there's joy. No, the joy helped to forge the unity. The joy is coming to bring the unity. Now with this in mind, let's, let's hear one, one other idea. Rabbi Shlomo pointed out that the word in Hebrew for water, mayim, doesn't exist in the singular. It only exists in the plural. So we know that when someone goes into the mikvah, right, that the mikvah brings purification. So I would extend that thought and I would say where there's unity among people, that also brings purification. When there's peace in the community, that in itself is a mikvah. So, so now one more point. We poured water on the altar at that point. What did we, and this is going to connect a lot of thoughts that we've said up until now, what, normally speaking, do we pour on the altar? And the answer is wine. And how did Noah fall? Through wine. And who is the rectification of Noah? Moshe. And so what, is, what are we doing? We're bringing water, right? And this water, which is Torah, this water is coming to fix the wine. Meaning to say that Moshe is coming to rectify Noah. Okay. So now let's, let's begin to wrap it up and really get to what I'm trying to say. Because, believe it or not, I haven't made the point yet. <laughs> Let's ask the question again. Let's ask the question again. Why is the central soul that was ever created dealing with water? Remember, Moshe is, when he's born, he's put into an ark to save him from the water because all the other babies are being drowned in the water. When Moshe dies... It's because he hit the rock in order to bring water. And then we have this, this amazing thing, the greatest miracle ever, the splitting of the Red Sea, which Moshe does. Now, does the splitting of the Red Sea sound like the separation of the higher waters and the lower waters? Right? And you want to hear something even cooler? Listen to this. If you want to think of Moshe, like this is like a far out visualization that kind of came to me during davening. If you want to think of Moshe as like the sort of the continuation of Noah, Noah gets through the water in an ark, right? Moshe walks through the split sea. He just walks through the water. There's no ark. <laughs> like, like as a further right? As a further evolution of the soul of Noah, you're getting through the water in a boat, and now you're just walking through the water. And by the way, bringing everyone else with you. Right? Even more amazing. But you know something? The end of the, the greatness of the miracle is not just that the water got split. The greatness of the miracle is that the water then came back together and eliminated evil. Right? Because it covers over the Egyptians. It doesn't remain split. It comes back together. 
And now I want to give an answer, which is that why is the central soul dealing with water? Because the primary aspect of this world is the base of Breshin, right? It all starts, the, the whole Torah is, 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 is a blueprint for the world. And the very first letter of the Torah is the base of Breshin. Okay, base is the number two, right? That means division. That means duality. That means body and soul. That means man and woman. That means heaven and earth. That means good and evil. That means the written law and the oral law. Right? That means even more primarily free choice. Why is that too? Because I can do this or I can do that. Right? Everything, everything, this entire world is balanced on the first letter of the Torah, the base of Breshis, and all of the duality in the world. So why is the central soul dealing with water? In order to bring unity where there was duality. In order to reveal the oneness in the world where the illusion of the world is that there's two instead of one. The greatest soul's preoccupation, if you will, with water, and remember, Torah is compared to water by the Talmud, is to address this split between the upper waters and the lower waters, meaning to say the illusion of duality in this world. Moshe doesn't just split the Red Sea. After it splits, it comes back together as one to reveal the oneness that's there. Now, you want to hear something far out? Breishis, you ready for this? Breishis is Bez Reishis. The letter Bez, which means two, and then the word Reishis. If you look in the Medrash Rabbah, the Medrash Rabbah brings that the word Reishis means Torah. So in other words, Reishis, Torah, is coming to fix the base, the duality that exists in the world. So you see, in the very first word of the Torah, the entire mission of all of creation, Torah is coming to reveal unity. The Rashis is coming to get rid of the illusion of the base of duality and to show that there's only oneness in this world. And of course we know that the word Echad has the same gematria as Ava, one and love, right? Because where there's joy and joy and love, like the Rambam uses them in certain contexts interchangeably almost. Joy and love. When those things come, oneness becomes revealed. Now I want to say something deeper, which is that Reb Shlomo points out the fact that the Torah never mentions that water is created. This is really far out, okay? So the Torah talks about a lot of things that are created, but it never says, and then God created water. You don't see it. Which means on some level, water existed before the world was created. Right? However, we're able to understand that. So that means that the division that exists between the separation of the upper water and the lower water exists within the totality of water itself. Let me try to explain that better. 
You see, we have a concept in Torah called simsum. Simsum can be explained in different ways, but the, the, the most primary explanation of simsum is that when the world was created, what God, what God did initially was he made an empty space within himself. This is like a, a womb, if you will. Like this whole world was, is, is, can, can be compared to a womb. Um, God created an empty space within himself, and then he shone a light into that, and that light became progressively more materialized until the physical universe was created within himself. And why did he make this empty space? So that people would have free choice. Right? That's getting back to this idea of bays of Breshis. So that people could choose to be good. See, we're higher than angels. It says it in, in Gomorrah Sanhedrin. We're higher than angels. Why? Because we can choose to do good, whereas angels can't choose to do good. Because God is so openly revealed to them in the spiritual realms that they can't think otherwise but to do good. We think, eh, God's not looking, <laughs> or I'm not in the mood, right? And then hopefully we rally ourselves and go, uh, no, still want to do the great thing. And then it says that the angels gasp in envy of us. They gasp in envy of us because we're able to do something that they can't do. But now let's get back to this idea and we're, we're really wrapping it up, I promise. Mm-hmm. This idea is that this empty space that God made within himself so that we would have the ability to choose to do good, right? So the great Kabbalistic joke is that even in the empty space, God fills the complete empty space. <laughs> you think you can have any area that, that God is not inhabiting? So even in the empty space, God is completely in the empty space. Right? So that's this idea that water existed before the world was created. That when you have the separation of the upper waters and the lower waters, it's all within the waters. <laughs> if you feel that God's not there, okay, mazel tov. You feel like God's not he's still there. But I feel like he isn't. All right, I hear. He's still there. But now I'm running away from God. Good luck. <laughs> you know, he's always there. And, you know, Kabbalistically speaking, we talk about the four worlds. They're not four separate universes. They're just like stratas of materiality or, or spirituality, if you will. And it's obviously the most spiritual at top, becoming more and more physicalized on the bottom, right? But we have to understand that God is equally present in this dimension as he is in the upper dimensions. He's not as revealed but he's equally present in this dimension as he is in all of the dimensions. So Torah is coming to reveal all of this. Torah is to coming to reveal the oneness of God, the unity of God, and that there is no separation. Even when our eyes and our hearts and our minds tell us that there's a separation, there is no separation. Okay, we'll stop there.